All, All right. right. Okay. Well, welcome to you talking with Greg. Uh, and guess who my guest is today? It's Greg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my deep friend, Greg Thomas, uh, unbelievably well-read uh, intellectual who has enlightened my soul on many different areas. And uh, we were able to join forces together and do a body and soul series. Uh, and really, although I haven't known you that long, man, it's been great. And I'm so excited to have you here today and for you to share your wisdom uh, with us today. So thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome. And likewise, man, I, I enjoy our camaraderie. I enjoy our, our connection, uh, which is on multi-level. So I consider you not just an intellectual comrade, but a friend. So thank you, man. Oh, thank you. Me too. Yeah. Right. Uh, I saw mm -hmm. you make a post to the Meta Modern Listserv, if you recall, and you're all like, hey, you know, very quickly you're able to sync up. Uh, with that's each right. Other, and that's great. That's definitely. Great. Mm -hmm. So, so there are a couple things I definitely want to circle in uh, today. Uh, but one of the things maybe I, I would like to start with is your history. You know, uh, you have a really rich history that I'd love for the folks to share on your journey uh, to how you got here and interested in integral and cultural intelligence and all of that. Um, so if you just start maybe with your story, that certainly is, is wow. a rich one as far as I'm concerned. Thank you. Okay. Well, I was born in Brooklyn, New York. My family is predominantly from the southern part of the United States, Georgia and Florida. Um, grew up in Brooklyn um, with, my, with my mom. Um, my mom and dad separated pretty early uh, in my life. But um, I'm happy to say that my father and I are close. And uh, in fact, I would go down south where he's, he's she's from, they're both from Georgia. He's okay. from mm -hmm. Ludwissi, Georgia. He's from Waycross, Georgia, mm. and they met and courted, and I came along. <laughs> hey, it happens that way. <laughs> that's right. So um, they both came to New York, and that's why I was born in Brooklyn. And so, uh, but I would go down south every summer, and this is an important part of the story because of the cultural connection. I would go down south every summer to stay with my grandparents. Um, first, it was just my paternal grandparents because my paternal grandparents and grandmother, my mother's mother, mm -hmm. she was in New York also. And then she moved right. back and I would be with both of them. Mm -hmm. I actually spent fourth and fifth grade going to school in Waycross, Georgia. So mm -hmm. I, I, you know, being a, a northern boy uh, used to concrete, yep. um, I was able to have the experience of living in a small town, you know, with a uh, backyard and pecan huh. trees and, right, and right. Clay, clay streets, you know, right. uh, red clay, the red clay of Georgia, I'm wearing red. Right. Um, so it was really important for me in terms of getting a sense of distinctions based on region and also this, this certain cultural foundations for me. So okay. if I hadn't gone down south periodically or irregularly, frankly, I wouldn't have, you know, known the Southern hospitality, the, right. you know, yes, ma'am, no, sir. Right. You know, the right. signs of respect and that type of right. thing. Um, the slower lifestyle and pace, but you're still dealing with the human condition. So you're talking about the same human condition, <laughs> you know, just some different. We're all alike you know, in some ways, right? Yeah, uh, and, different, and really different. Yeah, yeah, different idiomatic styles. But so that's first. That's his first and foremost. Then I would say I'll, I'll fast forward to high school, mm -hmm. where I, I was. We were in Brooklyn. Then we moved to Staten Island. Uh, right. My mother, myself, and my little sister uh, Angela, mm -hmm. and um, started going to junior high school there, and then to high school, Tottenham High School where I had this very powerful experience um, with a friend of mine, uh, Mason. We went to see a stage band concert of the okay. Tottenville High School stage band. <laughs> and we saw young people our own age up there playing this music. And a stage band is basically like a jazz big band. Okay. You know, we've got okay. the rhythm yeah. section of piano, mm. bass, drums, maybe a guitar, with a 
saxophone section, a trombone section, and a trumpet section. And so they were playing like hits of the day. They were playing some old style jazz, some Basie, some mm. Ellington, some Steely Dan, you know, some uh, uh, weather report, things like that. And it just blew us away. So Mason said, he said, oh man, I've got to pick back up my guitar. Because mm. he had played guitar, but he, tried, right, right, right. he was inspired. I said, I got to pick up something. <laughs> so I, I took out a, a, a Bundy Selmer alto saxophone to start to learn how to play. And uh, that started a real um, lifelong love affair with music. Okay. Jazz in particular. So not only did I learn how to play and join um, the concert band and the symphonic band and eventually end up in my last year in the very stage band that influenced me. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I would, man, I would get up in the morning and listen to um, jazz radio. I would come home from school and at, before going to sleep at night, listen to, listen to jazz. I, I would go to the St. George library in Staten Island, take out recordings, you know, I, I just, I just fell in love, you know, deeply, deeply in love with the music. And so that became, you know, an ongoing passion. Mm -hmm. So when I went to Hamilton college in 1981, I'll just, can, can I just pause you there? For of a second? course. I just want to, I want to make a comment of gratitude. All right. So, uh, because, uh, as you know, I mean, our, you radiate this love of passion and jazz. And one of the areas that I, uh, you know, I dabble in a lot of other things, but actually aesthetics and in particular music aesthetics is underdeveloped in me. Okay. And seeing and feeling your love, you know, has sprinkled a little bit of a seed on me in that regard. Okay. Uh, and okay. I have felt that you know, since our presence. I mean, you know, both in terms of scholarship, I mean, I would have never thought about really the fundamental, unbelievable, rich scholarly approach you could take to jazz that you do. And the centrality of music in our common sense of being, you know, which I've sensed, you know, intellectually sense, but you live that man. And, okay. and, you, and that has brushed off on me. And you know, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, thank you, man. And, and you're welcome. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a passion. It's a, it's a deep and abiding passion. So I was going to say that next is this college where I minored in music. Yep. I majored in public policy, but minored in music. Went through the history, survey history of, of Western um, concert music, you know, uh, and the symphonic tradition, various stages, you know. And also studied jazz, particularly private study, and being in bands and that type of thing, and in the Hamilton College Stays Band, where in my junior year, I had a life-changing change, experience. Mm. Okay. I had the opportunity because our band director, Don Cantwell, mm. arranged for the great jazz trumpeter and flugelhorn player, Clark Terry, to mm. come and play with the band with his charts. Okay. <laughs> and so I always, whenever there were, you know, not only musicians who would come and perform, but even mm -hmm. speakers, I would always do research. So mm -hmm. I did the research on Clark Terry and I had heard Clark Terry, but okay. I, I did the research and found out that um, it's from St. Louis um, and that he was someone who, was admired by Miles Davis, also mm. from St. Louis, mm. um, and was an early influence on Miles Davis. Wow. Uh, was an uh, influence on Quincy Jones. <laughs> and- I recognize it, those names, man. They I, must there be you important. go. <laughs> there you go. And he did his, his graduate and postgraduate studies in the orchestras of Count Basie and Duke Ellington. OK, so I mean, so this is in 1984. By this time, I mean, he he's a he's an elder master. So I had the opportunity to first, the, you know, we rehearsed, we went out to eat. I was part of a small group of students nice. uh, who were with him. Uh, you know, we went out to right. dinner and I'm just like I'm in awe of him. So right. I'm sitting next to him. He's like, so what's say, Gregory? You know, he's kind of, <laughs> kind of bringing me out of myself. 
And then the next day, I had a chance to play Duke Ellington, Squeeze Me, But Just Don't Tease Me hmm. with Clark Terry. Oh, wow. And so I'm standing next to a grandmaster and we're playing the same melody at the same time. Uh-huh. And then I am a couple of feet away while he's taking one of his incredible solo improvisations. And that literally, it was like, I felt like it was osmosis. Like there was some type of entrainment and transmission. Mm -hmm. So that literally from that experience, my sound on the saxophone, alto saxophone Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. changed. (laughs) I started to project my personality and identity from my horn out into the world with more, more force, wow. with more intensity. I, 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 I really say that it was like, it helped me to come into my manhood. Wow. So it was almost yeah. like an, it was almost like an initiation experience. Right, right. You know, so it's very powerful. And then there. of course, that, fir- that, that fully cemented the love of jazz. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which was already there. And then, you know, from there, and, you know, I've had a lot of different types of jobs and stuff. Right, right. But I guess, you know, fast forward to my being a professional writer. So mm-hmm. I graduated from college in 85, became a professional writer, um, writing for publications starting in the mid-90s, okay. early to mid-90s. Um, Village Voice, The City Sun, which is now defunct mm-hmm. uh, black newspaper in, in Brooklyn, New York, and any number of publications. Mm-hmm. And in the late 90s, I actually went to grad school. I, I did right. um, a doctoral program at, a, at mm-hmm. NYU, New York University, mm-hmm. in American Studies. Right. And at that time, um, I used it, even though it was American Studies, I used the program as a way for me to be able to go deeper into history, literature, and anthropology, because culture has been an abiding interest. So I, I, I felt I didn't have enough of it as an undergrad, right. so I wanted to get more of it in, in, in grad school. But it was at this time in the late 90s that I actually came across the work of Ken Wilber. Huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. At NYU is in the village, you know, okay. Greenwich Village in New York. And in the village, there was a bookstore called East West Bookstore. Okay. And so I would periodically go in there and they would have right, incense right. going and stuff. It was very nice, <laughs> you know, new agey environment. East West, man. That's you know? right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I saw this book called A Brief History of Everything yeah. with this guy on the cover, handsome guy um, with a a very, you know, kind of intense look. Mm -hmm. I said, let me look at this. Hmm." I said, well, let me get it. And I got it. I read it and my mind was blown Mm. at the, it was actually a summary. It was a, it was a shortened version of his magnum opus, uh, sex ecology and spirituality, I think it is. And so you know, that took me on a, a intellectual journey into integral theory. But what it did for me right then and there is it showed me how many of these topics, many of these subjects that, you know, are, is in this discipline, in this field, how they actually related and interconnected right. through these four quadrants, you right. know, of the aqual, you know, all quadrants, all levels model. And I, I tell you, it answered so many questions. It gave me a deeper understanding of a lot of the stuff that I was studying from a post-structuralist and post-modern perspective. Right. And um, and it just, you know, put it put a lot in perspective for me, you know, so okay. it became a good foundation for me. Right. And, it's, and for about the last 20 years, I've, you know, I've studied pretty deeply. Um, I have been writing for right. integral publications, including Integral Life, yep. um, you know, for any Good number of years. Macintosh. Yep. Oh, yeah. And I'm a member of the Institute for Cultural mm-hmm. Evolution. Yeah. I'm a senior fellow with them right. and, uh, you know, that Steve founded and runs. And so, and that is an integrally based organization. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that just gives you a quick well, maybe yeah, not no. so quick summary. But. No, that's a beautiful, rich summary. And uh, and you really have deep expertise in the lower left quadrant. 
Yes, culture. where culture lives. Yeah, yes. where culture lives, and you put right. on uh, an unbelievable. I know because I participated some and saw some of the love that was given back to you. You put on a <laughs> hell of a cult uh, course on cultural intelligence. Yes, uh, and so you know, I'd like us to riff a little bit about the concept of. Culture, lower right, integral, sure. things along those lines. Yeah, lower left. Yeah, I mean, I mean definitely. Yeah. yeah, that's fine. The um, the course was cultural intelligence, transcending race, embracing cosmos. And this is something that at the end of uh, 2020, I, um, I, I held and, and ran and collaborated with the Align Center in um, Irving, New York, in, in Westchester mm -hmm. County. And so this was a nine week course where we took a look at, you know, first what culture is and what it isn't. Mm -hmm. uh, we decoupled race from culture. Mm -hmm. um, we looked at the various concepts that, that, you know, through the 2000 years or so of the history of the very idea of culture mm -hmm. that it has gone through. Um, we also then, after we had the foundation of, okay, what culture is, what it isn't, particularly in relation to race, because deep coupling that is important because people mix that up all the time. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and I think it's, a, it's almost a fatal conceptual mistake because if I look at you based on your phenotypic characteristics, Greg, and then I presume or assume certain intellectual or cultural or you know, any number of characteristics of you just by viewing that. Yeah. Um, I mean, just on the face of it, it's just stupid, but you know. <laughs> but, so more than just a white guy, Greg? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I mean, oh, you looking at me and saying, <laughs> well, I mean, this guy's got, you know, brown skin, therefore, yeah. I mean, it's just, but anyway, we know that um, the people, unfortunately, um, have been victim to what Stanley Crouch, my, my friend and fellow writer, calls the decoy of race. But after we unpack those, decouple those, look at culture more deeply, and also look at what I call a non-racial worldview, because we know that there's a racial worldview, mm -hmm. but quiet as it's kept, there's a non-racial worldview, which is not the same as a colorblind way of looking right. at things, no. It's a conscious decision, and we talk about conscious culture in right. the course. It's a conscious decision to not identify mm -hmm. with the very idea of race as it's been mm -hmm. used over the 350 year or so history of, of, of race and racialization, which is right. putting people into racial groups or groups based on their, their phenotypic mm -hmm. characteristics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So- um, would, you, would you say that this then sort of would, maybe was what could come after, or if we move through the current anti-racist period, is this sort of a vision for what would be, maybe we could move toward? Would you say that? How would you position that? Oh, I would say in relationship I would, to. The I would say that um, it definitely needs to be a part of the menu of choices of identity yeah. that people can take a look at. Because see, the, the thing is, people. Some people assume that well, if I don't have a racial identity, what do I have? And my answer mm. is culture. Yeah. Culture. Okay. Right. Okay. And so um, I'll say that, you know, in, in short, right. and we'll, I think we should probably get into the whole anti-racism thing a, okay. a little later. Let me just, right. just lay out this yeah, framework yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for the cultural intelligence model. Please. So then in that same part one, because three parts, mm -hmm. we take a look at cultural codes. Mm -hmm. We take a look at, you know, your, your last guest, um, Lean Anderson, uh, Lean philosopher. Anderson, yep. Rachel, yeah, thank you. Uh, Lean Rachel Anderson, she was talking about these cultural codes. And so we look at that and we, in fact, her book on men and modernity is one that we, um, we referenced and, and had some excerpts from. 
Um, we look at some spiral dynamics model, okay. you know, different developmental models, both from an individual and a historical perspective, right. so that people have a grounding in looking at um, our human reality and our human development over time mm. um, as from a cultural lens. Okay. So then we give some case studies. We go into part two. Mm -hmm. And we look at culture from the perspective of Western culture. Mm. And we look at American culture. And then we look at Black American culture. Yeah. 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 And then in the last part, we, we, it's like we, we took it to, the, to the, the, the space of the personal mm. uh, and to conscious culture. So it's like mm. we, we deal with you know, emotions and cognition so people can understand how that plays into how we see ourselves at these various, say, cultural right. codes, right. Um, and how we express ourselves, some of the barriers, cognitive and emotional, that get in the way of growth and development. And then we look at intergenerational trauma mm. from an individual perspective, from a, mm. from a group perspective, and even a, a large group perspective. So we have mm. references for that. And then we end up, you know, with, you know, the, the cosmic perspective, you know, be, taking a look at um, concepts such as rooted cosmopolitanism, which is like an idea that basically says you can be rooted in a locality and you can be rooted in particular identities that are uh, based on a smaller category than humanity, whether that's ethnic uh, whether it's gender, any number of obviously uh, identity markers that you can relate to, as well as cosmopolitan, being a citizen of the world or a citizen of the cosmos, you know, it's in there. Yeah. Um, I think it's a beautiful concept. I, I really, uh, because what it does is it's, you know, we speak, you call to be cosmopolitan and global, but of course we all come from somewhere. And then the question is how do we honor where we come from hold our differences as appreciated in the global, that rooted cosmopolitan goes down and up in a really beautiful dialectic. Absolutely, thank you. It's a beautiful way of putting it. So yes, yeah, so, so we take a look at some of these ideas, some of the thinkers that you know, posit them, and we, we you know, have a framework then to go out into the world, not just with you know, um, emotional intelligence, which is a foundation, right? That's the foundation and in the third part, um, not just with our models of growth and development, but with some tools, some conceptual tools, some linguistic tools, some perspectival ways of seeing and being in the world that allows us to be in the world more intelligently so that we don't fall prey to, you know, the scylla of, um, you know, Race, racially based uh, identities like white nationalism mm -hmm. or the charybdis of the woke anti-racist model, mm -hmm. which essentializes race in its own way mm -hmm. and then categorizes people based on that racial identity, uh, erasing for the most part their, their individuality, which mm -hmm. is the foundation of liberal democracy. Right. See, and that's problematic Big time. You mean sometimes you get polarized on these issues, Greg? Every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> Every now and there, then. You mean yeah. there's like an intelligent path forward on this kind of thing? <laughs> there actually is, and it's, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy because some of these positions and perspectives are not that well known. Uh, there are many reasons for that. But, you know, people say, I don't have a choice. What do I do? You know, it's either this path or this path. I don't like either one. Mm. So a lot of times people will either stay and just be confused or not, you know, watch these folks fighting it out and warring and just try to get out of the way or may even regress to an earlier stage of mm. development, like an ethnocentric stage. You know, if you look at the cultural codes that uh, Lean was talking about, you have, you know, a... Uh, in, indigenous code, right? Mm -hmm. um, then you have a uh, traditional mm -hmm. orientation, you know, religion and myth. You have a modernity, you know, yep. modern, postmodern, right. um, and then frameworks such as metamodern integral. And there are some people who, you know, and we can get into the details of it, and I'm sure mm -hmm. that most of your 
the people I know that's part of the TOK group and <laughs> others who would be drawn to a conversation like this know that, you know, if you're in one, in one area of your life, you might be, you know, modern or modernistic. And another area, you might be like really this off the charts. You might, you know, be what they call second tier. So, you know, it gets a little complex, but the point is that you could be at a particular stage and it's not the case that you will keep, you know, uh, developing events, you might regress. Mm. And some of these positions and people not feeling that there's a, either a middle path or a way to look at things other than these polar opposites that, that war, um, people can do that. So yes, there are other ways of seeing and being. It takes a certain level of, of study and sophistication in that like a, a philosophical position like rooted cosmopolitanism, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, it's a pretty sophisticated idea. Yeah. Um, you have pragmatic pluralism is, a, is another uh, a way of, where you use American pragmatism and mm -hmm. more of a uh, kind of a, more of an integral pluralism uh, that then gives you a way to use, you know, the frameworks that William James and John Dewey develop, right? right? Yep, of course. And then, and and you connect that with W. E. B. Du Bois mm -hmm. and Elaine Locke, who mm -hmm. both studied with William James at Harvard, mm -hmm. and they develop, you know, through the Harlem Renaissance and through mm -hmm. their work, certain orientation to politics and culture that others and 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 there are many women involved in this, mm -hmm. also Zora Neale Hurston and others. Mm -hmm that ultimately in the mid-century, in the 40s and 50s and, and on from there, the two people who I think best encapsulated the direction of, mm -hmm. of an integration of pragmatism, an aesthetic sensibility, yep. uh, and a cultural grounding with a knowledge, you know, of the great books to, to use that, you know, of the, <laughs> the, the, the deep, profound history of Western civilization, yep. literature, drama, um, I mean, science also, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they were really literary men. So they were great literary modernists. And I think they were proto-integral and proto-metamodern too. Um, so it was through their work, Ellison and Murray, that I was able to get a, profound understanding of myself as an American, as a black American, to get an intellectual and philosophical framework for understanding the musical tradition that I had fallen in love with and how it connected right. to American democracy and how it connected right. to other great traditions. I mean, it gave me, gave me so much. So I've coined a, an expression, the Ellison Murray continuum. So I'm a legacy <laughs> of the <laughs> Ellison Murray continuum. Well, yeah. Th so as you know, I went out and uh, got some of their books, especially the Omni-American. I found, A, the opening paragraph theoretically blew me away. Remember that conversation about the negative and what you start claiming justification, which actually is a total parallel. Well, uh, I mean, I, I, I got my bookshelf right here. Maybe if I can find it, maybe I can... Would you if, mind? If I, I would, if you, no, take a, take a second and look. It's actually one of the coolest... Uh, Actually, have my copy up here. Oh, good, good, good. You know? Yeah, go. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I see mine too. Hold on a second. Okay, <laughs> if you have yours, you can. Your voice is ten times better than mine, so you read it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So as you find this book, the Omni Americans, folks. Uh, speaking as a guy who's been sort of uh, immersed in this challenge, I would say of. Be, trying to be colorblind and then appreciating that difficulty, being very, uh, you know, feminism, my first intellectual awakening. I, I'm very sensitive to sort of a critical race view if it's contained. <laughs> Sometimes I feel then the academia doesn't know how to contain it. Um, but then to circle back A, and of course be educated by you in relationship to blues and jazz and, and all of that. And then to be introduced to this omni-American perspective, which is this is like a 1970s book, I believe, yeah. um, or something like that to, to read through that and to see the, an outline of an American identity that somehow that weaves together the traditions and respects and honors them and also points to what feels like a healthy, deep 
future uh, that where where all shades are held in a particular space of honor and respect, and at the same time we also are situated to transcend uh, some of the horrors of the past. That's what it absolutely you said it, man. So this I'm going to share the opening lines, opening paragraph of the introduction of the Omni Americans. In a general sense, perhaps all statements are also counterstatements. Even the simplest pronouncements, for example, whether of measurable fact, and I think I'm going to need to put on my glasses here. (laughs) It'd be much easier to read if I did. Thank you. Um, Even the simplest pronouncements, for example, whether of measurable fact or of a point of view, are also assertions to contradict something that is assumed to be otherwise. Perhaps even the most objective descriptions, definitions, and formulations, as well as being implicit protestations against subjectivity, imprecision, and fantasy, are in effect counteractions against the void of the undefined, unformulated, and confusing. It may be then that such opening remarks as are found in the forwards to books are really answers before the questions, nay, replies, retorts, and refutations to exceptions that are not only bound to be taken, but in a sense already have been. Oh, God. I, 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 all right. So uh, I, some of the listeners will know this, but this is this. Go for it, man. Soul, break, man. Break, break, okay. break it down. Break it down. All right. So. Uh, so I, here's here am I in dealing with uh, you know what I realized the so language. Well, this all oh, this goes right to the root of the problem of justification, okay, uh, fundamentally, and the 1996 insight that I have that really transforms my view gives rise to the tree of knowledge system and then ultimately uh, the whole Utah philosophy. But here here's basically the issue, and that is. When we have symbolic communication, we jive, we have intersubjectivity, we set the stage for getting in the same sink. But then something happens when we make propositional claims. A propositional claim is a factual claim, okay, that then has clear meaning-based content in a particular way. And the particular way is that then it creates an investment and an influence dynamic around a justification, a proposition, okay? And by then taking up factual space, it then immediately op- creates negative space around it, which is exactly what he is saying, okay? And then the negative space can then get pulled into questions. And indeed, my whole argument is actually our person, culture, person, plane of existence is actually a battle of affirmation, bricks of propositions that then create negative space of questions that then inform us in a question answer dynamic, okay? uh, And so when I heard that, I'm like, oh my God, this is essentially a brilliant articulation of the negative side of the problem of justification right. uh, that uh, that pulls us actually to become human from at least the vantage point of view. Talk so, absolutely, uh, absolutely. I, I've never actually heard it as elegantly stated yeah. as it is in that plan. So when I saw, as you know, when I first saw that, I was like, "Damn, I gotta get that." <laughs> <laughs> I don't see it, but that is okay. That's that the way he put that is based on some formulations by a great polymathic thinker named Kenneth Burke, who today is usually studied in rhetoric and communications, but he was a really a polymath. And he and Ellison, Murray and Ellison were very deeply um, influenced by by Burke. In fact, they knew him, were friends with Burke. Mm. And um, there was a book in 1931, I think, called Counterstatement. 1931. Oh yeah. So I mean, I gotta check a, that yeah, out. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a really deep and rich tradition. I am terming it the blues idiom wisdom tradition. Mm. Ralph Ellison he dealt with what he called the Negro idiom, which okay. is basically a style, a way of being, a way of seeing, right? Mm-hmm. As as a definite, but he always put that within the context of America and American tradition and thought and yeah. practices. You know, g- generally, okay, it's right. within that frame. And Albert Murray, he came up with the blues idiom. Okay, mm. that, that was his variation. So what right. I'd like to do, if, if it's okay, I'd like to share 
something that I actually shared on Jamie Wheel's uh, book party um, mm-hmm. for his um, uh, latest book, Recapture yes. the Rapture. Sweet. Yeah. So what I did was I shared a description, a poetic description of the blues that Ralph Ellison gave in 1945 for an essay called Richard Wright's Blues. Then I fast forward 50 years to Albert Murray being interviewed and being asked, well, what is the blues idiom? Mm. And then I give my own take on what the blues idiom wisdom tradition entails. This is very compact and it can be unpacked, um, but here's the basics. Okay, Okay, So this is what Ralph Ellison said about the blues. Mm-hmm. Ralph Ellison said that the blues is an impulse to keep the painful details and episodes of a brutal experience alive in one's aching consciousness, to finger its jagged grain, and to transcend it, not by the consolation of philosophy, but by squeezing from it a near tragic, near comic lyricism. Mm-hmm. As a form, the blues is an autobiographical chronicle of personal catastrophe expressed lyrically. So this is next will be Albert Murray's definition of what is the blues idiom. He said, it's an attitude of affirmation in the face of difficulty, of improvisation in the face of challenge. It means that you acknowledge that life is a low down dirty shame. Yet confront that fact with perseverance, with humor, and above all, with elegance, okay? So what I'm calling the blues idiom wisdom tradition is part of the existential equipment for living. That was a favorite expression of Albert Murray's. He got it from Kenneth Burke. He called art as equipment for living. So the blues and the wisdom tradition is that part of the existential equipment for living derived from the lived embodied experience of black Americans in American culture. There is truth, goodness, and beauty in this tradition. And of course, it isn't just confined to my black American ancestors and their descendants. Once cultural gifts such as blues, gospel, jazz, funk, soul, and the like are innovated into the world, they become gifts to the world. Mm. The blues idiom wisdom tradition is therefore available to each and every one of us. If we can transcend the fakery and what Stanley Krauss called the decoy of race and embrace the infinite cosmic game of culture, If we can do this, we can then intelligently choose such embodied wisdom. Damn. Um, Man, that is, that's really powerful. Very powerful. Um, You know, as you know, I'm a psychotherapist. Um, And of course, you know, uh, arguably the thing that is most um, salient, heart, full soulful is the trauma of the past of my, of the clients and the trauma shapes them. Um, and I am, I'm sort of awestruck and cause I'm not sure I made that connection before, but as you note this as a philosophy and a wisdom for a traumatic past, it, it is, it's just beautiful and elegant and that particular way it captures that some aspect of that. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Cause that's what it does. I mean, Murray said that, he said, he said, black folks, we didn't have psychoanalysis. <laughs> you create what you what you need. So we created, we created the blues. Blues. You know? So, but see, this is also, and we could riff on this. This is also a post-tragic sensibility. Right. You stack science terms and things. Yeah. Yeah. So, so so this is something that, you know, pre-tragic is like when you're 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 innocent, you're a child, you're this. You know, the, everything is just, you're just in the flow with energy. Yep. And, and then every human being has to deal with the tragic dimensions of life. The understanding that we have mortality, that not only we have mortality, but those we love have mortality. 
And then there's catastrophe. That's that catastrophe that that was referred to that we go through. You know, the blue, the reality of the blues as such, as Albert Murray put it. But then to go from the tragic and the tragic is going to be there that understand that realization, but can you then deal with your trauma in a way that that trauma isn't something that will arrest your development so that you can no more, that you can't really grow that you're stuck emotionally. And so that if you can work through face, work through integrate, heal, then while keeping the tragic sensibility, you go to a post-tragic. What I read there to you were, was a post-tragic philosophy, yes. man. Right, right, you know? uh, totally. That's a, and that's what, as a, I'll just say then, as a therapist, what you actually are trying to do really on an individual level, yeah. and what this speaks to is trying to do this at a cultural level. What you try to do is you honor the tragedy of the past, right? And, and the longing for the pre-tragic, oh God, before the world was catastrophic, right. I used to think this and now I'm in this. And then there's the glimmer of what would be fulfilling on the backside of this? What would enable this to, you know, enabled me to grow in a fulfilling way and find once again, a sense of security on the backside of this, this post-tragic. And so it just echoes such a hopeful, honest vision that it right. certainly moves me in a particular way. Thank you, man. Thank you. And that's what we, you know, <laughs> Dwayne Elgin, um, who is also, his work is, was foundational for the course. He has a book called The Living Universe. Hmm. That's very influential on my conception of, like, if we look at the cosmos right. as living, mm. the universe as living, not as dead. Mm. Because in modernity, it's like, you've just got dead matter, right? <laughs> yeah. oh. And you're just swirling around aimlessly with absolutely no purpose to your mm. existence. Mm. That's brought a lot of alienation, anime, and disconnection from right. our, our, our religious traditions, from our soul traditions, all of that stuff, right? But if we say the universe is alive and we're a part of the universe and a part of nature, we're not separate from these things, then you can have an orientation and rooted cosmopolitanism is, is connected to this totally. that allows you to say, my goodness, the post-tragic acknowledges that. But if you woke up this morning and the sun was shining and you're breathing, that's something to be thankful for. If you can live in an attitude of gratitude, despite and even through the stuff that you go through, then you're starting to get to like a post-tragic orientation and sensibility. You know what I mean? Totally. But, I mean, but blues music and so the so the blues itself, the tragic is blues as such. Right. right the right. post-tragic is represented in Murray's work in Stompton Blues by blues music. So he would say, well, even if the lyrics are about a tale of woe, the insouciance of the saxophones mm could be sexually saying, well, but hey, and then the jumpers could be saying, you know, playing like a laughter, wah, 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 laughing, using the comic mm -hmm. dimensions or the trombones, dignified, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have in one statement, the realization of the tragic, the tale of woe, but other responses to that. Mm -hmm. And then when you have that statement, he calls that the fully orchestrated blues statement that the big band in jazz represented. So we haven't even talked this deep. So this is, this, is, this is very, very profound, deeply rooted, it's, it's wide, it's deep. It's, I mean, this is, and, that's, and it's mature. That's why I mentioned Dwayne Elgin. Right. Dwayne Elgin said that he will ask people around the world, where do you think humanity is? When you look at you know, childhood, right young adulthood, uh, uh, maturity, almost to a T, they say, teenager, young adulthood, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And what this is, is a very mature mm -hmm. American-based way of seeing 
reality. You talk about the ontology, seeing reality, right? And dealing and being in that reality. So to take a jazz musician, I mean, one of the things in the hero and the blues that, that Murray talks about is like, he uses the analogy of uh, the hero's tradition. Mm. And like, if you have, you know, uh, the swordsman is, 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 um, is uh, uh, like a sword. Okay, take a right, sword, right? right? Okay. The sword is put through the fire. Mm. That steel is put mm -hmm. through the fire to become stronger. Right. That's antagonistic cooperation. Mm. So, you know, what we go through ultimately, approach properly, Mm -hmm. And once you get through that trauma, these mm -hmm. become these become ways to learn and to grow. Mm. You see what I'm saying? So as oh. a jazz, a jazz musician uh -huh. has to develop skill, right. has to develop that procedural knowledge, okay. mm -hmm. skilled yep. craft, right? right. To, to, to riff on your boy, Vervake. Vervake, you know what you're talking <laughs> You got to have that procedural, right? Right, right, right. But, but you also have that perspectival. So the blues idioms give me that perspectival. You learn how to play, first of all. You learn how to communicate. You learn how to see things and be in the world with other people, that intersubjective reality. Then you learn to play with others. Now, others have their own perspective. So in jazz, you play, you agree upon, like, what songs are we going to play? Like, what's the order of the solos? What's the chord changes we're going to use? But when in the midst of playing, you leave room for improvisation. You leave room for the unexpected to arise, right. okay? Out yeah. of that complexity, right? right. See? And yeah. so, so the, the, the blues and jazz model is not just confined to music. It's no. really about ways of being and seeing and behaving and acting in the world in a mature post-tragic fashion. No doubt. So, so, yeah. so since, so since yeah. the United States is a young nation, mm -hmm. and since, you know, if, if we say, well, if we look at the development of, 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 yeah. our, of our nation, yeah. we're pretty young. That's right. So this is a very much, and the irony of this coming from a Black American tradition where because of the fallacy of race, mm. people are not going to look at it and take it seriously. And you've got answers mm. right there. Totally. From within the actual tra cultural tradition and thought of some of the greatest cultural thinkers and writers of the 20th century. <sighs> Beautiful. Beautiful. In fact, I, I was just, uh, as you were talking, I was now connecting these, you know, we intersect. Uh, so, you know, my psychological tradition, I was just connecting with Steve Quackenbush, professor of psychology, been following this. Uh, and he was like, Greg, we have to turn the tree of knowledge into a much more active felt sense of being, even though it's the science side. And he was like, how can we do that? We got to give people a participatory flavor. Think about energy birthing matter. Think about matter birthing life life birthing mind, culture birthing us today, where we are, and now we have to play our game in the context of that arena. That uh, infinite game. Yeah. To be agents game. and actors in that arena. Back to Vakey. <laughs> so absolutely. And, and the participatory. That's the last of the four. Right. So we're talking about a participatory universe. Um, what's his name? There's a great poet. David White, who says the universe is conversational. Hmm. Jazz music is a conversational art form. And when you talk about conversation, you talk about language, you talk about statement, counterstatement, back to your model. So it's all there. Totally. It's all there. And we've only gotten the tip of the iceberg, my man. We've only discussed the tip of the iceberg. You know? <laughs> Totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the bridging here, I mean, the bridging, the science, humanistic, the, the weaves that are coming together with an integrated, pluralistic, rooted cosmetology vision around this thing yeah. are just you know, awe-inspiring. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you, since it's the science piece, yep. people might assume that, you know, well, this is, this is the humanities and this is, you know, music. This is, has nothing to do with the sciences. Wrong. Um, <laughs> I want to find here where this book is Murray's most polemical book. Okay. He takes aim at the social sciences. He's not a huge fan. <laughs> no, he's not a huge fan. And he takes aim at the social sciences because they have what he calls here white norms, 
for black deviation. So, yeah. you know, he used the word white supremacy, but he didn't just leave it out there and use it like some mantra. He called mm. it the folklore of white supremacy. Right. And the fake lore of, fake. Ba- of black pathology. Oh. So what he did was he actually said that these social sciences weren't scientific enough. And that was the problem. So I'm gonna I'm gonna find I'm gonna find that. But let me ask you this while I look look for yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, sure. So in the time that we've known each other and you've become aware of some of these, how has it landed for you in, a, in an embodied way? Mm. Lots of ways, um, lots of ways. So one, uh, I mean, I, the the embodiment of the jazz blues idiom in the felt sense of being, you know me, I'm definitely heavy on logos. <laughs> I gotta get down in the body, right? right, right. Um, so I have felt music in a different way. So that's one thing. Um, I have felt the embodiment of the black tradition in a particular way through this, you know? Um, I have felt the embodiment of the black tradition in a way that honors it, I think, or at least th- feel like I can see through the eyes of Murray in a particular way, mm-hmm. you know, and, and both honor the tragedy and the horror of the past, but do so with a deep sense of pride and integrity and a vision for what's possible in the future in a way that greatly centers me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've had an intellectual vision sort of over this, but I've basically been bouncing around between various sort of like, on the one hand, hey, I live in Stewart Strath, Virginia, that goes 75% Trump, okay? That's a, that's a rural area, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Could probably li- use a little critical race theory on their, on their <laughs> mind, okay? I'm okay. serious. But then okay. I go up to, the, to James Madison University, you know, and you know, we need another 10 hours of critical race theory education for us professors. And it's like, come on guys, you know, we already have 40 hours of this. You know, like, right. I mean, the system itself is so, yeah. you know, and I'm like, how do we find an intelligent, synthetic mm-hmm. way that does honor to the various voices in a particular way? Right. So at the level of, so, it, so there's a vision around sort of race confusions into cultural intelligence. Right. Um, and really even a deeper level for me, what I am feeling is a reach from the philosophy and psychology unified theory into aesthetics. Mm. Mm. That's where we that's where we really began with a lot yeah, of our absolutely. conversation. And, and it keeps coming back to this. And, and the thing is, is yeah. I, one of the things I said, because I, I checked, I mean, is it, you've got a deep, you know, model. And I was ready to understand the, the basics of it mm-hmm. because, I mean, I cannot articulate. I mean, when you can articulate something, that's when you really know it. But, but because I had had the integral framework being able to look at the totality of human history and development. But also before that, and I'll just plant this seed, mm-hmm. going into Hebrew Kabbalah mm-hmm. and what's called the tree of life and going from what they call the subjective realm and zero, no thing, through these archetypes, the noumenal realm, mm-hmm. to physical reality, I had I had that foundation too, so I was able to really grok in a basic way what you were right, what you were moving right, towards. Right, but one of the things when I joined the TOK, TOK group, and I did this provocatively because I could feel and tell that particular aesthetic gap, yep. and I actually asked about it, and you said, "Well, <laughs> you good know, point." Yeah, right. <laughs> so then, then I pointed out Suzanne Langer's work was also very influential on yes. Murray in particular mm. because she dealt with, she called, she had the wonderful model, feeling and feeling in form. That's what art is, feeling in form. And she has a whole body of work dealing with the mind, body, how it relates to emotions, how it relates to human behavior, how it relates to aesthetics. Very Thank profound. You. Okay. Yes. So, so I want to read this last piece here. All right. Because I said that this book is his most polemical book. Yeah. Well, he said, the prime target of these polemics is the professional observer slash reporter. That major vehicles of the nation's of the nation's information, alas, who relies on the so-called findings and all too inclusive extrapolations of social science survey technicians Mm. for their sense of the world. Mm. 
The bias of the Omni-Americans is distinctly pro-literary. It represents the dramatic sense of life as against the terminological abstractions and categories derived from laboratory procedures. Its interests, however, are not those of a literary sensibility at odds with scientific method. Right. Not by any means. On the contrary, a major charge of the argument advanced here is that most social science survey findings are not scientific enough. They violate one's common everyday breeze tasting sense of life precisely because they do not meet the standards of validity, reliability, and comprehensiveness that the best scientists have always insisted on. As a result, they provide neither a truly practical sociology of the so-called Black community, nor a dependable psychology of Black behavior. All right. What a beautiful indictment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A lot of resonate there. Obviously, I'm a big critic in relation. I thought he... Oh, yeah. The problem of psychology, of course. And, the problem. And, yeah. Well, what, I'll just speak. Here's one of the things that psychology um, gets uh, very wrong. I love the way he's hitting on the survey. And I've made this point, uh, not so much from a, an ethnic perspective or race mm-hmm. to ethnic perspective, but from a just a generic perspective. One of the things that happens, uh, my friend Jim Lamille, who's a theoretical psychologist, scholar, makes this point brilliantly. He's made his whole career on this point. Mm. Is that there's a fundamental difference, okay, between individual level, uh, personalistic analyses, like you as Greg, right. me as Greg, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, you know, uh, and variable aggregates analysis. Mm. So variable aggregate analysis is, oh, how does depression relate to this uh, antidepressant disorder? Or how is poverty relating to this? Or how is this racial category relating to this? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's definitely knowledge to be had in that relation. Mm-hmm. But if you don't understand the, the way to pull variable aggregates mm. in relationship to individuals, mm. you are flying blind. Mm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and fundamentally, because actually my critique is essentially psychology punted on a coherent model of the individual at the level of the individual, mm. don't have that. And essentially, you'll read basically what they just report are variable aggregate relations with no articulation about how you apply the variable aggregate findings to the specific individual within any degree of realistic coherence. Mm. I hear you, man. So I hear anyway, you. I hear it. <laughs> so, yeah, that is a great, great, the Omni-American book, it's ahead of its time as far as I'm concerned. It's a polemic, but it affords us a very, very clear, uh, to me, the right kind of vision. I was very deeply touched by that. And this is, I mean, we're talking, we're talking, this was, last year was the 50th anniversary of this book. So if this book were, if this, if, if Murray's work and Ellison's work were foundational to American studies, uh, to the humanities, to uh, so many different you know, feels that their work is crucial for, I think, and, and, yeah. and fits within. I think things could be different, you know what I mean? Totally. And the fact, and, and let me give a critique. You gave a critique within your field. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to give a critique to Black studies or African-American mm. studies. Mm. Because of the influence of the radical wings of the civil rights movement mm. and the influence of certain ideologies such as Marxism, Mm-hmm. Their work has, and they, and, and of course, we're talking about from the 60s into the 70s going into a postmodern, they were a literary high modernist. Right. So their work was, was, wasn't looked upon that, that admiringly, mm-hmm. if not ignored. I mean, Ellison, who, whose 1952 classic, the you know, Invisible, Invisible Man, Man, not, right, Invisible right. Man. You know, made him a literary uh, uh, icon in America. Yep. You had the younger generation of many radical activists railing against Ellison. Hmm. 
Okay, so their work is not even central to African-American studies and black studies. Okay, so that's my critique of that field. Mm. And I it's not something I know, you know, sparingly. I wrote a cover story in The Village Voice in, in the beginning of, I think, 1996, <laughs> called The Black Studies War that pitted Malefe Asante, proponent of mm. Afrocentricity at Temple University, versus Henry Skip Lewis Gates at Harvard. Yes. Okay, yeah, and sure. this, I mean, this 5,000 word piece really deals with that whole field and its development from that point and some of the, the, the areas of conflict. So that was over 25 years ago. So I know what I'm talking about. Oh, I know you do. If you read it. <laughs> no. Hey, man, you and I are dancing together. You know, all right. All right. So, okay, man. Hey, man, this has been wonderful. You know, as we wrap up, was there anything we didn't? touch on that we that you hoped uh, to at least note here I think we covered a heck of a lot I think we covered a lot man so I'm just I'm just appreciative of the opportunity to speak with you finally publicly publicly right, right. and to right. and to share you know my perspective on some of these matters and there's a lot more of course that we could talk about but I think this is a really great foundation excellent and and thank you for your leadership on body and soul I love doing that with you uh, I look forward to future conversations, friend. This has been wonderful. Thank you, my man. You take All care. All right. Okay. Take care. Now. All right.